From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. The baby boom generation, or those born between 1946 and 1964, are reaching a new phase of their life. It is estimated that by 2030, more than 70 million Americans will be over the age of 65, meaning now more than ever, specialized geriatric care is needed. So what's different when it comes to the health care for these older individuals? Dr. Tom Shives joins me as co-host as we learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll hear about research on the health of long-haul truck drivers. And tanning beds, why using them may be costly in more ways than one. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, did you know that every day in this country, 10,000 of us baby boomers turn 65? 10,000 Every day? day. Yeah, 10, wow. that's 10,000 people on Medicare. New ones every day. <laughs> yes, I look at it that way. <laughs> According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the older population, the seasoned citizens of this country, will double in the U.S. during the next three decades. And that means that by the year 2050, there will be... 85 million adults over the age of 65 in America. Wow. This aging population presents its own set of challenges when it comes to health care, as physicians and families focus on keeping their loved ones healthy and safe as they age. Here to discuss geriatric medicine is primary care internal medicine specialist, Dr. Paul Takahashi. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Takahashi. Well, thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Tom, for having me back. I appreciate it. Getting a chance to talk about older adults and see what we can do about helping them out. I'm seasoned. That's what Tom Seasoned, seasoned older. That's right. So I I want to know, did did you look at the statistics and say, you know, I think I'll be a geriatrician because I know I'll always have a job? You know, Tom, actually I did. Uh, (laughs) Because I know that there's going to be a lot of older adults and they have their own unique issues and complications. And I thought when I was a resident, I thought, well, I would be really great to uh, study this and to be specialized in this. So that's what I did. Do you um, enjoy this practice? I love taking care of older adults. I mean, people who are older have their unique life experiences and their world experiences. We can do a lot to help. I think that there are people who are very appreciative of their care. They know they have real illnesses. They have challenges in their life. And it's really rewarding to help those individuals who need it and to help their families, too. You probably learn a lot, though, by taking care of people that are experienced and seasoned. Absolutely. We learn a lot about their life histories. We learn a lot about them as individuals. We also learn a lot of wisdom about life in terms of, you know, how do we, should we live our life? What should we be doing? Uh, so I really gain a lot from my patients as well as them learning from me. Uh, how is a geriatric exam different than what I experience as a normal physical? Yeah, I think for younger adults, we really concentrate a lot on prevention. We talk a lot about, you know, vascular care and cancer prevention and uh, vaccinations. In older adults, we really concentrate on the functional status. We really concentrate on how they're able to move, how they're able to think, how they're able to get along at home. And so a lot of times when we talk with people or see people in the office, we really look at how well they're able to mobilize. How are they able to actually walk in the office? Are they using a cane? Are they using a wheelchair? How easy is it for them to get up on an exam table? We take that for granted when we're younger, but when we're older, um, sometimes it's very, very difficult. 
Uh, we take a look at their general's care, their skin care, their feet. Uh, we take a look at how well they're able to dress and undress. There's some very simple things that we do in the office that are just a little bit different. So what do you learn by looking at their feet? Well, we take a look and see how their cares are doing, Tom. Uh, we take a look and see how, they're, how well they're managing their feet, how well they're managing their toenails, and they're mm. cleaning between their feet. For a lot of our diabetics, we want to make sure they have they don't have sores and ulcers and calluses. So there's a lot of things we learn from our feet, and it can be very, very significant and dangerous because um, if we don't take care of our feet, that leads to big problems down the road. Is it really important, if possible, to have either your spouse or one of the patient's children come into the, the appointment with them? Oftentimes, Tom, that's a very important part. And you know what we naturally start to see? That starts to happen over time. So, again, when you're younger, you usually go by yourself. And over time... Uh, we, tend to, we tend to start seeing spouses come to the office or children, loved ones, friends. We start to have other people, another set of ears or another set of eyes or another part of getting some history from that. So that naturally starts to occur, and that's another sign that we're, there's something going on. We, moms is not quite having some challenges, and daughter comes because she's concerned or he's con- or son's concerned that mom isn't doing very well at home. We didn't talk about cognition, but certainly that's another thing we think about here is, you know, are they starting to repeat themselves or are they safe at home? It's another thing we oftentimes look for when we talk with people in the office. When I think gait analysis, I think about checking out to see if I've got the right running shoe. Mm-hmm. But gait analysis for seasoned adults is a different thing. Absolutely. We're just talking about just general gait speed. We're talking about can you easily walk across the, the, the light, actually. That's about one meter per second. If you can walk that, you're in generally pretty good health. You'll live uh, a fairly good long time generally when you when you're less than that when you can't walk that one meter per second and that's about really, a yard that's right? about a yard mm-hmm. yeah we, we really get really worried i mean if you're having problems doing simple walking if you can't walk a quarter block another thing we really start getting worried about so we're not talking about running we're not talking about fancy shoes mm-hmm. we're talking about very simple uh, mobility within the home you know another thing i think it's uh, important to, to emphasize for our listeners whether they're um, young, middle-aged, or older adults is when you go to the physician, write down your questions Absolutely. before you get there. That's Especially as you get older, you tend to be a little more forgetful, which is a normal part of aging. <laughs> but you got to write this stuff down. Absolutely, because oftentimes we want to make sure, as a geriatrician, I concentrate on this. And every time I talk to people in the office, I say, tell me how you're doing, how things going for you at home. Are you, know, are you having problems or difficulties? Then we launch into the medical issues that come on, which as we get older, we start developing more and more medical issues, diabetes and heart disease and high blood pressure and all sorts of arthritis, all sorts of things which are really important and which are important to our, our, our patients and our families. But I'm also worried about how they're doing at home. How are they eating? How are they getting around? How are they getting dressed? Are they having worries? How's their driving? There are some simple things that, you know, are for safety issues are really important. So it's nice to write that down and make sure we all emphasize that before we delve into the medical parts, which are also important. I want to ask you about uh, prescription medications. Absolutely. Uh, It seems to me, and and I don't know exactly what the statistics are, but it's sort of mind-boggling. And that is that the average seasoned citizen in this country is on five or six prescription drugs. makes no sense to me. Well, and Tom, the challenging thing is as we get older, we start developing more illnesses. So that's kind of why a lot of this starts to occur. We start to develop things like high blood pressure. So how do we control high blood pressure? We don't want to have a stroke or heart attack, so we have to use one or two medications for high blood pressure. High cholesterol, we know that if we control that, that also has problems with uh, stroke and heart attack and osteoporosis and so on. So that's where we start thinking, why is it that all of our older adults or our parents are on so many drugs? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes because it's, it's for good thinking. It's like, oh, we're going to try to prevent this heart attack or stroke or prevent this fracture after a fall. But the problem is, you're right, they start developing 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, 12 medications. Well, and 
Part of the thing then is that you've got to manage the side effects of those medications. That's correct. And then sometimes don't you get additional medications to help with the that's, side effects of other medications? That's the challenge. So there's two things that happen. One is this escalation of side effects. So you start saying, oh, I'm starting to get constipated, so I have to try to treat my constipation or my sleep or other things. So you start treating that. And the other thing is as we take more and more medications, it's very hard to take 10 drugs. Yes. I mean, it really is. So Truly. maybe uh, maybe one out of three people can do that effectively. And these are oftentimes people who are maybe highly educated, very smart, but again, just very difficult to take 10 drugs uh, and multiple times a day. So that's really even more challenging. You know, a recent article in the New York Times suggested that maybe one of the medications that was being over-prescribed were psychiatric drugs, that there are a lot of uh, adult, a lot of seasoned citizens on psychiatric medications. Like what, for what, depression? What is, yeah, is depression, anxiety. I don't know. That's Absolutely. what I want to find out. Yeah, that's, um, that's concerning, Tom, and probably true. Uh, we know that depression really doesn't change a lot in terms of how often it occurs as we get older. So, it, But the problem is the, a number of our older adults are on these medications. So the question is, why does that happen? Yeah, is this, yeah. What, what medications? What well, we're talking about medications. Medication. Like a lot of antidepressants are probably the most common ones. Those are medications like uh, fluoxetine or sertraline or other types of simple medications like that because we think, well, gosh, you know, our, our mom or loved one is depressed. Mm -hmm. And so we say, oh, we'll do this, we'll help this out. The challenging is we get older, um, we develop a lot of illnesses, and a lot of things can sim be similar to depression. The other thing that's really common in our older adults is isolation. Uh, you know, yeah. I think that we take for granted that we have a lot of interactions when we're at work. We have a lot of our colleagues and friends and people we interact with. When we retire or when our family members are busy and doing other things, it's very easy to become isolated. And so I think a lot of times that, that's a component to this, uh, just the general challenges of being ill with either heart disease or other types of problems become a problem too. Oftentimes we use these medications to help out with appetite or with sleeping or with other things. So that's why these things start to accumulate. Sure. I'm glad that we're, we're shining a light on this. Actually, the government's done a very good job with this and shining a light, particularly on medications we call antipsychotic medications or medications for psychosis and um, um, memory loss, dementia. They're really trying to put a light on that and say we really shouldn't be using these medications, or if we do, we use it for a very short period of time. All right. Dr. Paul White Takahashi, we need to take a short break. He's a geriatrician. He'll always have a job. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the aging population, how we can help them stay healthy and safe at home. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is a geriatrician. He takes care of older Americans, Dr. Paul Y. Takahashi. So, Dr. Takahashi, uh, do you make house calls? I do, actually. You do? Yeah, but I do go to people's homes. I go to um, assisted living centers, nursing homes, and go to people's homes. Um, as people are getting more frail and becoming a lot harder to get into the office, uh, we're doing more and more house calls. You actually, have a little black bag and stuff? I do, yeah. actually. <laughs> I do. I have blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope and a pen light and go out to people's homes and actually take a look at them there. There's a lot of advantages of doing that because a lot of folks just can't get into the office anymore. Sure. That just becomes a challenge. Well, earlier in the interview, you said... Uh, you know, checking what how easy it is for them to get around. And so if you're at their house, you can see, is that something that needs to be addressed? Exactly. And that's kind of why we're starting, we're starting to move more and more toward the home. It's interesting. It's a national phenomenon that we're starting to go more and more towards the home. 
What are some of the things uh, exactly in that line are you suggesting to people when you go to their home? I mean, are people, do they have to get rid of area rugs? Do they have to increase lighting? What are some of the things that you're suggesting? The, the big thing is making sure the medications are set up properly and that there's a good system to make sure people are getting their medicines. That's so one like thing we, one of those little plastic things that says exactly, Monday, Tuesday, yep, Wednesday. Not today. a little one, a big <laughs> the, the one. Big there's one, some that are the size of this laptop. There is a, There are big ones. and But if there's a really good system, Tom, yeah. that's really what's important. Tracy, I agree. Trying to make sure there's good lighting, make sure there's going to get rid of all the kind of the, the trip risks and the fall risks. Those are really critical as we go into the house. We talk with people about that and make sure we do kind of basic safety evaluation. The big thing is making sure that, you know, the, what the lifestyle issues are going on as well. I've also uh, learned through the course of this program that the bathroom is a really tricky place for falls. Correct. A lot of falls with elderly folks happen in their bathroom. What do you uh, suggest to people after you've been to their home on a house visit and you've been into that restroom, the bathroom area, that, what do you suggest? Well, the, 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 oftentimes the most important thing is making sure they can easily get up and off the toilet okay. and making sure they can get bathed. I mean, bathing is probably the first thing that people have challenges with. Uh, that's the toughest thing because you've got to get in and either get in and out of a tub if you have a standard tub-shower combination or trying to get in and out of a shower if that's, that's a little better if you can. Uh, when you're trying to wash yourself and you're closing your eyes, that puts you a little bit more of a risk for falling. So can you sit down when you kind of get washed? The big thing on the toilet is making sure that you have uh, some grab bars or some way to actually help prop yourself up. Uh, because that's oftentimes really difficult. It's oftentimes they're very low. You can raise those up a little bit, and that can also help people get up and off the toilet. Those are very big res- uh, areas for fall risks for those individuals. So that's kind of what we focus on. Yeah, and you don't really know that n- n- until you actually go into you would the never, home. You would, the, and the you learn so much by going to someone's home. You learn so much about what their support is and how they're getting along. What about tests? Let's talk about the, the difference between, you said in younger individuals, we kind of concentrate on, on prevention. Mm-hmm. Older individuals, not so much so. But what tests, blood tests or otherwise, do you still think it's important to get for somebody who's 65, 75, 85 years old? For example, yeah. you, you don't do a pap smear anymore Absolutely. on a 75-year-old woman. Absolutely. But, and, and what else? So Tell a lot us. of, you know, usually the cut point, Tom, is about age 75 on a lot of the cancer screening. At that point, we talk with folks, who's, when we're getting to our 80s, there's a lot of variation. Some folk are really healthy and out doing a lot of things, and we expect them to live a long time, in which case we talk about cancer prevention and we talk about cancer testing. For a lot of folks, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense if they're, yeah. if they're very frail. Uh, what kind of tests we typically do? A lot of times we're really worried about kidney function. Uh, we know the kidney function starts to decline with time, and that can affect your medications. Uh, blood count sometimes people can get anemic or not have a high enough blood count. That can also be a big concern as well. You can tell how their kidneys are doing with a blood test? With a simple blood test, yeah, okay. absolutely. So that's something that oftentimes when, you, when people go to their, their doctor, we say, let's make sure we take a look at your kidney function or look at your sodium and potassium blood minerals because oftentimes as we get older, those minerals can become a little bit uh, um, out of range if they're too high or too low. That can make people very, very sick. And that was seen not infrequently when we see people in the office or the hospital, for that matter. What about a chest X-ray? Is that routine uh, or uh, no? Chest not X-ray, so we're kind of moving away for a little bit from that. Is so, that right? um, you know, there's some, you know, for some cancer screening and younger, older adults, so people in age 65 to 75, if people have smoked for 15 years, you know, sometimes we'll make a recommendation to get a, a, a CT scan, actually. But routine chest X-rays probably are kind of going out a little bit just because. Um, either we have symptoms, we say, oh, we're worried about like fluid in the lungs or something like that, or we just don't routinely do them. Much How about more. osteoporosis? How do you screen for that and at what age? Yeah, so osteoporosis is an incredibly important p- problem. Uh, we typically look at that about age 65 for most women. And for men who have had any type of a fracture or a broken bone, we need to think about that in men too. 
We don't often think about osteoporosis in guys, but uh, men oftentimes have that because they're living into their 80s too, and they're slipping, falling on the ice, and they're breaking their hips or their back or their shoulders. So it's important that we screen for those individuals as well and treat men for osteoporosis as well as women. The thought is occurring to me that as uh, Tom started off by saying, what was it, 10,000 people turn 65 every, every day? day? So as you go through that, you know, you're planning your retirement, you know, how you're going to move into that position. That's something that everyone, if we're lucky, is going to eventually need a geriatrician. So if you're talking about, you know, financially, how do you age, mm-hmm. you know, planning for that, how should people plan to age? What right. should people start doing in advance of turning 65 so that they can float through this a little bit easier? I would. The big things I'm planning is going to be your, where you're going to be living. I think that's probably the biggest thing for financial as well as health, recognizing that there's different stages of our life. Uh, we go through periods when, we, when we're young, we go through apartments and such, and then we get a house and we get a bigger house. But as we get age, that typically goes the other direction. We go get smaller and smaller, and we get to points where we don't need as much support or help not to do basically mow the lawn, basically. The other important thing, Tracy, is being around family. I think making sure you've got some sort of a support network around you when you retire. Uh, you know, we've typically said, oh, my job is in, you know, Seattle, Washington, and that's great, and you can do all the great work there. But as you retire, maybe being around family members is going to be really important. And I think that what we're seeing that's, happen- that's oftentimes happening in our own community, people are moving into our town just to be close to family who work in, work in the city. Don't we need more geriatricians? I mean, if you look at the statistics, uh, and we're not training that many, are we? Well, Tom, I think uh, I agree we're not. But I also, what we're trying to do is also to make sure that every clinician is a good geriatrician, that yeah. every specialist has an understanding of how we deal with older adults because there's no way we'll ever have enough geriatricians but I do think that every specialist and every surgeon should say, I'm really comfortable taking care of older adults. I'm really comfortable ta- working about this, the medication questions or asking about functional status at home. How safe are you at home? And if we can, if we can teach that to everybody and everyone's aware of that, I think we'll be in a much better position down the road. Is there a resource that people can use if they want to find more online? Are there websites that you recommend people could look at? Yeah. Um, so... A lot of good websites. I mean, obviously, MailClinic.com is a really mm-hmm. good website. We really keep that up. Other areas, I think, are really good. Um, CMS has got some good websites for just some um, social situations, or if you're looking at housing or looking at uh, nursing home placement, that's really good. Uh, the CDC has a very, very good website as well for just general information. That's where I refer most people, and particularly for prevention issues, that's really helpful. Dr. Paul Y. Takahashi, geriatrician at the Mayo Clinic. He's taking care of hundreds of thousands of older Americans, and, and you and I might be there one day. Yeah. Even seasoned orthopedic surgeons. Well, exactly. <laughs> they just kind of float off into the distance, and they're, but they're all in heaven. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Dr. Takahashi. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. When we come back, Dr. Sanj Kakar will join me as co-host as we learn about what may be the unhealthiest job in America. And later on the show, we'll discuss the dangers of using tanning beds. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Parkinson's disease is a disorder of the nervous system that affects movement. Well, Parkinson's disease falls into the broad category of neurodegenerative syndromes. Mayo Clinic Dr. Eric Alskog says... It's a premature 
aging-like process or degeneration of certain areas of the brain. These are the areas that control movement. Things slow down, you walk with a shortened stride, loss of arm swing, shuffling gait. Other symptoms include reduced blink rate, loss of facial expressions, and tremors. And it turns out to be a treatable condition. For many patients, medication to replace dopamine levels in the brain works well. Dr. Oskog also recommends exercise. you got to get hot, sweaty, and tired on a regular basis. Why? Ongoing exercise directly does good things to your brain. It's like liberating uh, fertilizer on your lawn. Talk to your health care provider if you think you may have symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And in other news, most children who die from the flu are not vaccinated. That's according to a new study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, published online in the journal Pediatrics. The article says this is the first study of its kind showing that flu vaccination significantly reduces a child's risk of dying from influenza. Lead author and CDC epidemiologist Dr. Brendan Flannery says that every year the CDC receives reports of children who died from the flu. This study tells us that we can prevent more of these deaths by vaccinating more. Mayo Clinic pediatric infectious diseases specialists not involved with the study say that it shows that this protective effect is seen in both children who have medical conditions that would increase their risk of dying from the flu, such as underlying heart or lung disease, but importantly that this benefit extends to healthy children as well. They say it's important that all children over six months of age get vaccinated every year. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. We see them every day on highways and interstates, behind the wheel of a semi-truck delivering goods all across America. We're talking, of course, about truck drivers. What you may not realize is that being a long-haul trucker is one of the unhealthiest jobs in America. Hmm. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 7 out of 10 long-haul truck drivers are obese. That's more than double the rate of other U.S. adult workers. Obesity can lead to a wide range of health problems, including diabetes and heart disease. So what can be done to help people with sedentary jobs, like truck drivers, and to help them stay healthy? Here to discuss is Dr. Clayton Cole, Chief of Preventative and Occupational Medicine at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cole. It's nice to have you. you. Nice to be here. So why the interest in studying long-haul truck drivers? Well, I think that we know that um, trucking uh, touches every bit of our lives, whether we put our kids on a school bus in the morning uh, or pick up goods and services from the local variety store. Um, it's been hauled by it, touched by a truck, and uh, and obviously uh, we need drivers to move, uh, uh, essentially move America forward. Um, uh, everything from tank trucks to you know to your local delivery truck for uh, a restaurant or a store. Um, drivers are in very tight demand right now, um, and particularly finding uh, drivers that are dependable, that are healthy, and um, obviously when something comes up that is uh, of a health concern, it makes a difference to the motor carriers, in other words, the employers of these vehicles, because, you know, there's obviously liability that goes with that. So, so in general, um, you know, uh, trucking is, a, is an incredibly important thing to all of us, and the health of those drivers is important to us at Mayo Clinic. So, Dr. Cole, uh, truckers have obviously been around since time immemorial. 
what's the recent interest been? Has, has there been a spike in problems amongst truckers? Why is this happening? Yeah, uh, about five years ago so or so, the agency that, that governs commercial truck and bus drivers called the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration um, began to really study this more and found that the actual fatality rates were going up slightly rather than down. Um, as part of that effort to try to control that, they made a, a, a sort of a wholesale set of regulatory changes, which included how the medical exam was being performed. Um, to that end, what they did was they required that any truck driver who would see a medical examiner to get certified to drive medically would have to see an examiner that had passed an approved course and then took a secure examination and passed that and, and were placed on a registry called the National Registry of Certified Medical Examiners. It, it increased the regulation, and the goal was to make it safer on the roads in the future. So to be a so to be a trucker, do you need to have a physical test? Then you look at their. You mentioned obesity. Are you checking their vision, for example? Um, correct. They have to meet certain uh, visual acuity requirements. Uh, they uh, certainly, if they have uh, signs or symptoms consistent with things such as obstructive sleep apnea, which are typically associated with uh, people who are obese. Um, these are all things that potentially could affect safety on the road by being overly tired and, and fall asleep at the wheel. And there's been a number of uh, nationally noted uh, accidents out there with fa- uh, fatalities uh, due to, for example, obstructive sleep apnea. So as examiners uh, here at Mayo Clinic, we look at drivers um, and actually have taught one of the courses across the country, and we've actually trained about 10% of the uh, examiners across the country to really look for how to do a forensic evaluation and, and to really make sure that the drivers that we are certifying are safe to be on the road. The safety part is, of course, of great concern because we're on the road with these truck drivers, but the bigger picture, too, is that uh, a lot of Americans have sedentary jobs, so the health um, implications can be similar. True. Only the difference is is that in this particular case that there's significant amount of stress. And um, when I say that, um, a driver can be perfectly on time, but the problem is is they may show up at their destination and someone's not there to unlock a gate or open a door or et cetera. Or uh, what's been told to us by uh, commercial truck drivers that we've uh, had actually at our courses uh, to to help uh, train the providers is that uh, there's nothing more impotent feeling than having a something going on at home and having your dispatcher send you the opposite direction. So they're at the mercy of the employer uh, many times, and it, it tends to be feeling, especially in larger motor carrier uh, organizations, that they're just a number. So mental health is part of this as well. Is that part of the screening? or Well, it's not screening, but is that part of an exam? Well, I guess you could consider it screening. You know, when we go through and do an examination on a driver, we go through a whole checklist of different organ systems, and and mental health is is among those things. Certainly, uh, individuals with uh, severe depression, uh, uh, psychosis, uh, bipolar disorder, these are all things that we need to screen and mitigate and make sure they truly are safe to be on the road. Um, I guess the thing to think about is, unlike us, that we go maybe on an extended commute if we're in a major metropolitan area, and we, of course, whine and complain about that, take that and times it over you know, an eight-hour day times a 40-year career is what we're talking about. And, and that's what really, uh, you know, we're, that magnifies the stress that's on a lot of these drivers. So, Cole, my understanding with truck drivers was that they are allowed to drive for a certain 
period of time and then they have to take a break. Is that still the case or are the regulatory uh, changes happening? Uh, yes, there's been regulatory changes. Um, uh, and, and the idea is, is that they don't, much like pilots, they don't want drivers to be at the wheel for ex- uh, too long a period of time. The problem is, is the way the payment model is for many drivers, it's by the mile. And so if the wheels aren't turning, they're not getting paid. And, and therefore there's that incentive to, um, to be moving all the time and not to take a break. And, and so the, the hours of service rules have been modified, uh, much to the chagrin of some motor carriers, certainly that want to get the most out of the drivers and the drivers themselves. And so it's done, you know, at, at peril of those concerns, but in light of, uh, public safety. What are some of the interventions that you propose for truck drivers to use if they're starting to have health problems? I, I mean, they could, it could work with anybody at their job, but uh, what interventions do you have for truck drivers? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point what we're really trying to emphasize is uh, the idea that you have to be physically fit as a driver. I mean, the drive is not just sitting on a seat and driving. And we try to teach the examiners that we train that um, – um, we actually have volunteers and bring a truck and trailer to the course to have them know that getting up into the cab, uh, cranking the landing gear on the trailer, opening the van doors on a on a, a van trailer, are all they're all musculoskeletal conditions that we have to think about. And and so having a more fit driver is something that we're emphasizing with, especially the sort of premium motor carriers, that it pays to have a a workforce that is healthier, uh, less liability for the motor carrier, and obviously safer to the general public on the road. Who would have known that? So next time I'm at the lights, Tracy, I'll be looking up and giving them a thumbs up. <laughs> Make sure that that's the finger that you're using. The thumbs up. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> We've been talking about ways to improve truck drivers' health with preventative medicine specialist, Dr. Clayton Cole. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Cole. Great to be here. Thanks, Tracy. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the dangers of using tanning beds. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. After a cold, dark winter in this northern frozen tundra, most of us can't (laughs) wait to feel the warmth of the sun on our skin again. Whether it's for spring break or maybe prom, some people try to get a jump start by going to the tanning bed to finger quotes, get a little color, but at what cost? Some of us are born with that natural yeah, color, Tracy. Lucky. According to a new study done by researchers from the University of North Carolina, roughly 263,000 skin cancers occur in the U.S. in 2015, and these were attributable to indoor tanning bed use. Interestingly, the, their treatment cost more than $340 million. Ooh. Here to discuss the dangers of tanning beds is Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Don Davis. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Davis. Thank you, Tracy and Sanj. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. I feel like we just have to ask you, tell us about tanning beds, and then Sanj and I could just leave and go have cupcakes or something. Absolutely. <laughs> well, dermatologists feel very strongly about tanning beds, and we're making very good strides in the political world with the federal government, having them outlawed for minors and hopefully eventually for all adults as well. Several states already have uh, laws against tanning bed use for minors because it is so dangerous. So first of all, it's labeled by the World Health Organization as a carcinogen. And so the warning labels will now be on tanning beds, which is very important for people. Now, there are warning labels on cigarettes and all sorts of other things that are bad, so it doesn't necessarily say that the warning label will stop people from using tanning beds, but hopefully at least it will be a pause moment where people will consider it. 
in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, we used to say in pediatric medicine that television was the cheapest babysitter, and it's easily and readily available. And I think that a lot of parents expose their children and themselves to tanning beds because it's cheap and easy to do and readily available. And it's purely easier to bring your child along if you have a tanning bed appointment. And so what I'd like to suggest is there's no harm in wanting to have a tan on your skin, but just do it in a healthy way. Well, I was going to say, and that's the problem, is that people consider if you are tanned, it makes you look healthy. Correct. But dermatologists will tell you that if your skin is naturally not a shade of brown, it's not meant to be that way. And if we can remember back to the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, actually having tan skin was a sign of unhealth. And unfortunately, with society progressing, it, it's gone the other direction. Now, Dr. Davis, I've learned of a new phenomenon, but it, I guess it's not new, that people, before they go on vacation, they pre-tan. <laughs> now, I thought that was the whole point of vacation. So can you explain <laughs> right. this pre-tanning phenomenon to me? Yes. So pre-tanning is a common cultural fad where people have the impression that if they tan their skin with light in some form, either natural or artificial, before going on a vacation somewhere south or where they will get more sun exposure, that it will decrease their risk of burn and decrease the risk of skin cancer. That is not true. Mm. There's no such thing as a healthy tan unless it's an artificial tan that comes from a spray or a lotion. So I always tell patients, it's not a sin to want to look tan. That's totally fine with me. If you want to get a tan and you want to favor yourself and take yourself to the salon, just get a spray tan or buy self-application lotion. It's much safer. It contains dihydroxyacetone, which is simply a stain, which now comes in a variety of colors. And it lasts about seven to 10 days on average to the average person. But when you go and you get a tan, it doesn't prevent you from getting a sunburn, and it only adds time in the bank where you've had ultraviolet light exposure to increase your risk of skin cancer. So because tan is damaged, tan is not health. Correct. So there's two forms of ultraviolet light that can cause skin coloring, UVB and UVA. UVB is what causes immediate darkening. So you go out in the sun for a couple of hours, and within the next day you can tell that you are tan. UVA is long wave light and is the prolonged light that gives you the delayed tan over several days' time. That long wavelength can pass through window glass, so it gets into your house and your cars. It can pass through clouds, so it can occur during cloudy days and you can still get sun exposure and skin cancer risk. And the other thing is that ultraviolet light is a wavelength of light, and based on our physics classes in high school, we know that light bounces off reflective surfaces like snow and water and sand and concrete. And so if you're sitting in a swimming pool or on the beach, you know, you get twice as much light because you get the light that comes directly towards you, and then you get the reflected light off of the surfaces that are near you. So now as all of us are coming out of hibernation uh, and hitting the golf courses, etc., what should we be doing to protect ourselves from the sun rays, for example, suntan creams? Yes. So the first thing about suntan creams is I like to remind people that no one has enough natural SPF in their skin to not require sunscreen. It's very common outside of the Caucasian community and the skin of color community of all sorts of cultures to believe that they don't need sunscreen because they have natural color. But studies have shown that at best, the absolute darkest patient only has an SPF that is natural of equivalent to about SPF of 12, with the average patient of color having SPF 3 to SPF 12. And that's not even where we begin our recommendations, because we recommend SPF 15 for daily use and SPF 30 at a minimum for outdoor use. 
So with regards to gradual sun exposure, your skin has been naive over the winter and has not gotten a lot of casual contact from the sun. And so just make sure that you're very good about using broad-brimmed hats, sunglasses that also have UV protection because some of them do and some of them do not. And that not only protects you from cataracts on your eyes, but it also protects you from skin cancer on your eyelids and on the skin surrounding your eyes, which is very important because it's thin skin and it's hard to reconstruct. And we want you to look pretty if you have a skin cancer that has to be cut out. But make sure that you start with a high-numbered sunscreen. So start with something that is SPF 30 to 50 and reapply every two hours or if you get sweaty or wet. And what about lotions or sprays? Yeah, so I tell my patients, I want you to use the sunscreen that you like best, as long as it's broad spectrum and it's at least SPF 30. And if people prefer a spray to a lotion, I'd rather them use a spray than nothing at all. A couple of key facts are that the average person only uses 30% of the amount of sunscreen that is recommended. So if you're using an SPF 15 sunscreen, odds are you're only putting on a third of what's recommended, which means you're only getting SPF of 5 Um, The other fact that we know is that spray sunscreens do not go on nearly as evenly and as uh, completely as lotion sunscreens. So you really have to shellac someone (laughs) as if you're spray painting your car a new color to truly get the coverage that a spray would give you. When I spray my family members, if they insist on the spray, (laughs) usually after one Dawn Davis application, they are right back to cream because it really is an impressive amount of aerosolized liquid that has to come out. You really feel like I am spray painting you. (laughs) Wow, I'm sure you all underdo that. Absolutely. The the other thing I wanted to ask you, Dr. Davis, is at the swimming pools I see in the summer, the adults, the men, for example, are wearing shorts, and yet their kids are wearing the tops and the shorts. Should should the adults be wearing the uh, the tops as well, or are they immune to this? Yes, so fortunately, adults protect their children, but they also should protect themselves. And so um, we need to show, first of all, good model behavior for our kids. But second of all, yes, adults should be just as covered as children. Um, Their skin is just as friable and vulnerable to the sun. And the the immune system that circulates to the skin as we age is not as viable as it is in children. So I'm always proud when I go to the pool and I see people with their hats and sunglasses, but it is important to wear clothing to protect yourself. And now that there's UPF or universal protective factor clothes, you can get them in fashionable patterns for reasonable prices that are long sleeve, short sleeve, tank tops, shorts, uh, skirts, and long bottoms. So yes, if you're not putting lotion or spray on it, it needs to be clothed. And I think the final thing I've learned from you is taking care of that sunscreen when you're carrying it along with you. Yes. Sunscreen expiration dates are not a myth, and they're not a marketing ploy to get people to buy more sunscreen. Firstly, a bottle of sunscreen should only last you three to four applications if you're applying it correctly, because one shot glass full of sunscreen should only cover your naturally sun-exposed areas when fully clothed, which is your face, your upper neck, your decolletage, and the dorsal hands or backs of the hands. So if you consider how much sunscreen that is, and if you're outside at the pool for a day or golfing with your shorts and short sleeve t-shirt on, a bottle of sunscreen is only going to last about three to four good applications. So you really don't have an excuse for it to expire or to be ruined by weather. But if you do put it in extreme heat or extreme cold because you leave it in your trunk and it's 100 degrees outside, you will sizzle the chemical components that make it work and it will be ineffective. We've been talking about the dangers of tanning beds and the importance of sunscreen with dermatologist Dr. Dawn Davis. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Davis. My pleasure, Dr. Kekar.
And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.